going to be talking about Billy Graham and doubt. Do you know that the, the most godly man on the planet dealt with doubt? Have you ever doubted? Okay, it's not got a lot of... You guys are much more honest than the second service. Um, I'll tell you about my own personal journey with doubt. Doubt is... It, it seeps in. It, it, it gets you unaware. There's different levels of doubt. We learned that last week when we were going over uh, Exodus and then chapter 4. Moses dealt with different levels of doubt. He gave God five different excuses why he was doubting. Uh, God, I can't do it because I'm a nobody. God, I can't do it because I don't have the right tools. God says, what's in your hand? I have a staff. God, I can't do it because I can't speak. God, I can't do it because they're not going to listen to me. All these things, all these doubts begin to bubble up. And then the worst of all the doubts is, it's like, I just don't believe that you can do it, God. Send somebody else, right? So there's different levels of doubt. Of course, the, the most extreme expression of doubt is just not believing in God altogether, agnosticism or atheist. So atheist, atheism is, you know, like, I do not believe God exists. Agnostic's a little more honest because, well, I don't, I don't know, but pretty much I don't think he exists, but maybe he does. So that's the agnostic point of view. Atheists are dogmatic. No, I can prove God doesn't exist because I haven't seen him. <laughs> it's faulty logic, by the way. My own personal walk with doubt is, is complicated, like everybody else's. It's complicated because I had experiences with God, and most of you have too. Even at a young age, I was exposed to uh, signs and wonders and answered prayer, breakthrough. Uh, I've seen, you know, at a young age, I've seen bodies healed. And, and there was even one, one case where I 100% convinced I saw an angel walking. So you could say, well, that's you know, all in your head. Maybe, maybe so. But, but then throughout my whole life and, and throughout your lives, there's been points. There's been milestones where God has come through at the last minute, where God has answered your prayer. Maybe it's a financial situation. God, if you don't come through now, I'm done for. And at the last minute, God comes through. That, that happens, folks. This is the kind of God that we serve. You have a relationship that is so broken and you, you can't fix it. There's a revelation, folks. You can't fix it. But God comes in and does a miracle, and he fixes that relationship. And so I've seen, like, the supernatural miracles. But you know what's even just as awesome is the practical miracles, right? A miracle is a miracle, whether it's supernatural or whether it's just a breakthrough. And so even though I was exposed to God's goodness and his miracles. I doubt it. It's a temptation. It's a, almost a disease. And it comes in different levels, just like Moses went through. When you get your Bibles out, we're only going to read one verse today, one passage today. And he, he is the master doubter. This is the gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. <clears throat> now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless 
I see the nails in his hands, and I put my fingers where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I have to have tangible evidence in Jesus. A week later, his disciples were in the house, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, pay attention, folks. Though the doors were locked, sometimes we lock God out. We can lock him out of our own hearts. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. This is, this is just like Jesus. He's got Thomas's number. I would have hated to be Thomas at this point. Then he said to Thomas, you put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, Thomas's story, we're no different. I'm no different than Thomas. I had the same experience because Thomas walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus, sat around the campfire, saw the divine miracles, saw Jesus raise people from the dead, healed bodies, practical miracles of food and fish, and he saw all the fun stuff that we all desire to see. And yet at the very end, Thomas is like, no, i got to have proof. Like, how much more proof do you need, right? He didn't believe in the resurrected Jesus. And that is something, that is a truth that we've got to get into our hearts in order to be truly transformed, in order to shake the temptation of doubt. I have doubted... I did it for a moment. didn't go over too well. But even though I had the same experiences as Thomas, where I just, I just, I, wow, God, you're real. It usually happens around your 20s, right? You begin, you begin to, you have dumb thoughts in your 20s. I had a really dumb thought. Maybe this is all just delusion. And God doesn't exist. So I went there for about a week. It's really depressing. I don't suggest it. Maybe it's just, maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe he doesn't actually exist. Certain things happened. It wasn't too bad, but, um, you know, the, you go in, you get, get into the education field, you go to college, and they tell you about evolution, and um, that could derail you. Um, I was actually okay going in, because even at a high school age, I didn't, this might be blasphemy for some people, but I didn't believe in a literal six days of creation. My mind was like, oh, a day could be a million years. The Bible says so. So I never had a problem with it. I never had a problem with, you know, the six literal days. And I like dinosaurs a lot, right? <laughs> so I had problems with it. But it's like, yeah, it's, my faith is okay. But then there was this point where it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And the information in, in, in college and higher education began, I began to question things. And for a moment, I was derailed, but that wasn't the kicker. The actually, I, I, 
Usually when people's faith falls because of the, the theory of evolution, it's not because of the theory of evolution. There's underlying doubts and insecurities and false beliefs about God. And, and they just use evolution as an excuse not to believe. That's what is really going on. C.S. Lewis, the most influential writer in, in the 20th century, None of us would be sitting here if it wasn't for C.S. Lewis. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and Mere Christianity. You name it. The guy was hes a genius, and he loved Jesus unconditionally. He believed in evolution. So if you want to believe in evolution, you can still love Jesus. It's not an excuse anymore. Ask C.S. Lewis. We'll find out the truth someday, but now it really doesn't matter. So that derailed me for a second. But you know what really got me was the philosophical and psychological questions about the goodness of God. It's about his character. So then you start diving down into the philosophy. Why would, why would a good God let bad things happen to a planet, to people, right? Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why, do, why is there starvation? Those types of philosophical questions. And that really derailed me. That did more damage to, to me, and that led me to fall to the temptation of doubt way more than some you know, theory of evolution. No, that one was the one that got me. That's the one that we have to be wary of, actually questioning the character and goodness of God. Huh? You see where it gets complicated? You see where we were looking for excuses not to believe in God because we can't answer these types of questions? And so I went on this existential, I don't know, it wasn't good. I doubted God. And it wasn't that I doubted his existence. I doubted his goodness. By the grace of God, I got out of it. By the grace of God, I chose faith over philosophy. I chose his love over trying to find out the right answers and having all the facts line up. I'm, I'm, I'm still asking questions, and I think that's okay, but I'm unwavering in my faith. Other things challenge my faith, like... I don't know, I probably doubted last yesterday because, I don't know, I got cut off or something. You know, you know how it is. Billy Graham had the same issues. And I'm going to tell you a story. His story of his walk through doubt. And it's really a story of two men. In the 40s, uh, church was a little bit different than, than what we do here. The, the hip new thing in the 40s was to have a, a, an evangelist come to your church the tent revivals would pop up in churches all over the place. And, you know, it was just like the cool thing to do. It was, it was just, it was like culturally accepted. And it was almost like it was entertainment because TV wasn't that good back then, right? They didn't have HBO. So TV wasn't as good. So they went to these tent revivals. And Billy Graham and another evangelist named Charles Templeton were uh, doing ministry with Youth for Christ and they were on the circuit. They were circuit rider preachers going from city to city, church to church. And they were doing so well that they would even go to Europe 
and, and do these uh, crusades in Europe, and they were very successful at it. Um, thousands would come to the Lord. And this is a miracle in and of itself. But two evangelists, Billy Graham and Charles Templeton, were really good friends. That's a miracle, folks. <laughs> For pastors and evangelists to actually get along and hang out together and not be jealous of one another and not, you know, that whole thing, not that, that, that nitpicky stuff. And so these two, get, they would get together and they would, one, they would do ministry together and they were very successful. Actually, Charles was more gifted than Billy Graham. He was more popular. He was more liked. And they thought that he was going to be the superstar. Billy Graham was, was too quiet and too humble and he didn't have the charisma that, uh, that Charles had. So everybody thought that, that Charles was going to be the, the big superstar. Charles was a lot like me, and maybe he was a lot like you, and then he went on intellectual pursuits. He asked questions. He really wanted to know the Bible. He wanted to know God. And he, I don't want to say he made a mistake. I think he probably would have made the same mistake, regardless of where he went. But he enrolled into Princeton Seminary. And... Let me just preface this before I get going. I value education. So I'm not going I'm not, I'm not to bash education of any sort. But in that environment for Charles, it was the, 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 the perfect storm for him to ask some very deep questions and where he got answers that did not satisfy him and actually led him to doubt more because of the way that his brain was wired. Because Charles was a Thomas. And what we know about seminaries is that we have a lot of people that love God and they love the Word of God and they go to seminary and we, we call it cemetery because they come out and they don't, they're not in love with Jesus anymore. How does that happen? And Charles began to ask questions and he began to fall to the temptation of doubt. He began to have these conversations with Billy Graham, and he was trying to convince Billy Graham to attend Princeton Seminary with him, to become a Bible scholar and not just a circuit rider preacher, right? So kind of a pivotal point. And here's the conversation that Charles and Billy had in the 1940s before Billy Graham before the Billy Graham crusade was the Billy Graham crusade, he was just a little nobody and just a, an evangelist that, that served a youth ministry. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. This is Charles talking to Billy. Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe. For instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a fact. This is coming from the preacher, okay? You guys tracking with me? This is coming from the evangelist. I don't accept that, Billy said. And there are reputable, reputable scholars that don't accept that either. Who are these scholars, Charles said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? 
Most of them, yes, he said. I have discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, or say, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. There are results. Wiser men than you or I have been arguing these questions for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all the sides of the theological dispute. And so I have decided to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word. But Billy, Charles replies, you can't do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it and you will begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. I don't know about anybody else, he said, but I have decided that that is the path for me. And the trajectory begins and the friendship begins to fragment. They no longer have coffee together. They no longer do ministry together. And yet when Billy Graham stood on this, when he drew this line, there's something about doubt. There's something about that word that gets planted in your mind and in your soul that, that's negative, that, that haunts you a bit. And Billy was haunted by the fact or by the, the idea that maybe he's right, that maybe Charles is right. And although that he's doing all these little these ministry gatherings here and there, uh, Billy was in a crisis of faith. Have you ever been in a crisis of faith and somebody calls you? Have you ever been in a crisis of faith and at the right time and the right place somebody walks into your life and shares something with you and encourages you, helps you to think in a different way, pulls you out of the muck and the mire? Billy gets a call from a lady called Henrietta Muirs. And she says, Billy... I want you to come up to Forest Home, right outside of Los Angeles, and, and preach at this Christian retreat center. And Billy took the gig, but he didn't really want to do it. And as he's at this Christian re retreat center, Henrietta didn't necessarily care about what Billy was going to uh, teach. She cared about him. Like, that was her target. She's like your grandma, right? Do you have this grandma that, that knows when you're being naughty and gives you a phone call, or was that just me? <laughs> or you have an aunt, or you have some spiritual mother in your life that has some strange connection, phone, direct phone line to God, and when things aren't going right, they know, and they call, and they, they, they encourage you to delve in deeper and just to do business with God, and that's what Henrietta was doing with Billy. It wasn't about him teaching at the conference. She knew that he needed something in that moment. And she brought him up to this Christian retreat center, and he begins to wander the sacred ground. Have you ever been to Forest Home? There's something special about it. 
It's sacred ground. I don't understand it. But what I do know is that, that the Henrietta Muirs walked that campus for days praying in the Spirit. So there's something special about that place. I don't understand it completely. But Billy Graham begins to walk these grounds and in the woods, and he repeats this very simple word over and over again. Thy word says, thy word says, thy word says. It's as if he's going into a meditation. He's processing his doubt through, your word says, God, your word says. One night... He walked into the woods. He set his Bible on a stump. We don't know where the stump is, by the way. They think they have an idea, but they're not completely sure. Billy sets his Bible on the stump. He's going to do business with God. Either this thing is going to be real or it's going to be fake. Like he's about ready to either quit ministry or delve into something much bigger. Sets his Bible on the stump. Oh God, there are many things in this book I don't understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seemingly contradictions. There are some areas in it that, that do not seem to correlate with modern science. This was, this was mine. I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions that Charles Templeton is raising and other people are raising. And then Billy fell to his knees and the Holy Spirit moved in him. And he said, Father... I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. He says, I am, I am not going to, listen, I am not going to question your word I'm going to preach your word. There's a, that's the, that's Forest Home. And on that rock, there is now a plaque for commemorating this very moment. And it was from this defining moment that the Billy Graham crusade was really launched. Henrietta Muirs says, after that night, Billy, for the very first time, preached with true power and true authority. He was no longer a Christian entertainer. He was an anointed man of God, and his words changed the world. At that meeting right there in that photograph, 400 people dedicated their lives to ministry. And a few weeks later, Billy Graham puts together his very first major crusade. And Ed, why don't you roll the video of that? The city of Los Angeles, California, has grown to such proportions that it covers many square miles between the Sierra Madre Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. In this area, 
four million men, women, and children live going to and fro, seeking, reaching, waiting. From Minneapolis comes the young evangelist, Billy Graham, and song leader, Cliff Barrows, his wife, Billy Barrows, and Beverly Shea, the gospel singer, to cooperate with Christ for Greater Los Angeles in a great revival campaign. At the corner of Washington and Hill Streets in the city of Los Angeles, the largest tent ever erected for a revival meeting is now complete and is called the Canvas Cathedral. And the tent is filled to capacity day after day as men and women flock to hear the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are 6,500 people seated here in this Canvas Cathedral, and several thousands more stand around the sides of the tent. Approximately 350,000 total attendance in two months. Because of the goodness and grace of God, I can say tonight I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. Every moving of the Spirit of God has been accompanied with great singing, and so it has been in this campaign. A vast throng of earnest people gather here Sunday afternoons and every evening to hear the beautiful gospel music, inspiring testimonies, and to hear the word of God preached in the power of the Spirit by Dr. Billy Graham to the salvation of thousands. I do not believe that any man, that any man can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. There are tremendous marital problems. There are physical problems. There are financial problems. There are problems of sin and habit that cannot be solved outside the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you trusted Christ Jesus as Savior? Tonight, I'm glad to tell you as we close that the Lord Jesus Christ can be received, your sins forgiven, your burdens lifted, your problems solved, by turning your life over to him, repenting of your sin, and turning to Jesus Christ as Savior. Shall we pray? Isn't that awesome? So that, that started a whole new life for him, and a whole new trajectory. Charles Templeton, on the other hand, went further and further down the rabbit hole of doubt completely abandoning his faith, declaring himself as an agnostic, and eventually wrote a book called Farewell to God, The Reasons Why I Left the Christian Faith. Interesting, huh? Some 50 years later, an individual, maybe you've heard of him, named Lee Strobel, a pastor, gets a hold of Mr. Templeton for an interview. Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christ. He was an atheist reporter, uh, started asking questions, messed around, and got himself saved. So, like I said, uh, if you want to ask questions from an honest perspective, it will lead to the truth of Jesus. So he has made a way for Thomases to stick their hands in Jesus' side. You just have to be honest. You have to be honest with the condition of your heart. 
But there is empirical evidence for the existence of God if you really want to see it. So Lee gets a hold of him. He's now an 80-year-old man. Billy Graham has changed the world by now. Lee Strobel asks Mr. Templeton this question. How do you assess the life of Jesus? Templeton's body language softened as he was suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about this with an old friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgic, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. This is the atheist we're talking about here. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person I have ever encountered. That's an interesting statement. And the most interesting person I have ever read about. His commitment was total, and it led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback, Lee says. You sound like you really care about him. Well, yes, he is the most important thing in my life, came his reply. And then he begins to stutter. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right words. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say that I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People didn't think of him in that way, but they didn't, haven't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger towards sin. He cared about the oppressed and the exploited. There is no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in all of history. And there has been, there has been many wonderful people on the planet, but there has been no Jesus. Oh, but no, he said, he is the most. And he stopped again and then started. He is the most, in my view, he declared. He is the most important being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words, I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With the tears flooded down his face, he turned his head downward away from me, raising his hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed, his body convulsed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could never 
I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of somebody, let alone a stranger. He sighed deeply, wiped away a tear, and a few awkward moments later, he waved his hand. Finally said, go away. Go away. That's enough. I can't take it. Could you imagine if Templeton would have just believed the word of God by faith? If doubt hadn't have gotten the better of a brilliant, gifted, charismatic, intellectual man? They say that, I don't know, I think it's like Three billion people have been affected by, Char- by uh, Billy Graham's ministry. Would it have been another three billion if Charles wouldn't have lost faith? You know what's even funner? Billy Graham was led to the Lord by an individual named, um, what's his name, Dad? Mordecai Ham, who was led to the Lord by Moody who was led to the Lord by, um, I forgot his name, another famous evangelist, who was led to the Lord by the 1800s, in the 1800s, by a, a shoemaker who was faithful to the call to be a Sunday school teacher. They estimate that this Sunday school teacher has, is, is responsible for some, like, Seven billion souls or something like that because of the men that he, that he influenced by teaching Sunday school. That's okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. No pun intended, folks. Did you guys catch that? Souls, yeah. Isn't that amazing? You know, I, you know, I wore the suit today again because it was the only thing that I had that was clean. But I want to honor Billy Graham. But you need to know something. Like, I have no delusions ever to becoming a Billy Graham. Speaking in stadiums and stuff like that. A lot of preachers do. I just don't like people that much. <laughs> like, this is a good, I like you guys. I want to get to know you. I don't need this grandeur. Hmm? Let me rephrase that. I like people. I just don't like hordes of people. I don't like going to big concerts. I don't like going to the, just crowds bug me, okay? So that, that's, it's like, leave me alone, don't touch me, right? <laughs> but I am convinced that I am called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And where maybe our church is not gonna, you know, have stadiums, our church will be significant. And we might just be like a, a Harrietta Muir setting where there's going to, we're going to provide an environment. We're going to provide a spiritual space where maybe someday some young woman or some young man of God will throw their Bibles on the stump and say, I believe by faith, God. Help me to change the world. That's the type of environment I want to praise. Our, our church has been given, from the very foundation of this place, has been given a prophetic word by an individual named, uh, by a prophet named Charles, uh, Campbell McAlpine, and we are to influence 10,000 people in our valley. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. 
And so we need the hidden ready mirrors. And maybe you're one, and maybe your son's a Billy Graham, and maybe your daughter is a Amy Simple McPherson. Who knows? But why not? But why not? All right, can you give me nine minutes? Or are you guys done? All right, I'm going to have Billy Graham close the service today. Just open up your hearts to what he has to say to you, and we're going to run this last video, and we'll be done. When Sir Walter Raleigh had laid his head upon the executioner's block and the officer asked if his head lay right, Sir Walter Raleigh said, it matters little, my friends, how the head lies, provided the heart is right. The heart has come to stand for the center of the moral, spiritual, and intellectual life of a man. It's the seat of a man's conscience in life. And the question that I want to ask you tonight is this. Is your heart right? The Bible describes the heart in various ways. The Bible says that our hearts are sinful, that it's full of evil imaginations. Proverbs 6, 18, the heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. All of the wicked imaginations that Hitler had, all of the wicked imaginations that the great criminals of history had, all came from the heart. The Bible says that our hearts are desperate wicked. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, I'm looking at it the way God looks at it. You see, God looks down deep inside of you. God sees how you really are down inside. You may be outwardly genteel, refined, cultured, a church member, in good standing in the community. But as God looks upon the heart, he sees our hearts as desperately wicked. And in Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said that our hearts are far from God. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Think of the thousands of people in America tonight that serve God with their lips. They go to church and sing, oh, how I love Jesus, but their heart is far from him. Even while the sermon is being preached, you're thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch. You're thinking about a TV program you saw on Saturday night. If you're thinking about this one, it'll be all right. <laughs> but we serve him with our lips and our hearts. Do you know the greatest stumbling block to the kingdom of God? Pride. More people stay out of the kingdom of God because of pride than any other sin. It's a humbling thing to come to the foot of the cross and repent of your sins and receive Christ. But I tell you, no man shall enter the kingdom of heaven unless he comes. There must be a self-emptying. There must be a self-crucifixion. There must be a repenting of sin. There must be receiving Christ who died on the cross for our sins. But we don't like to do it because we're all egocentric. We don't like to humble ourselves. We don't like to say we're wrong. We don't like to confess that we're sinners. But God says you must do it before you can enter the kingdom of heaven. And so pride keeps more people from coming to Christ. Pride will keep you from coming tonight to receive Christ. You're too proud. You don't want to humble yourself, and so you rebel. Then the Bible says that our hearts are rebellious, Jeremiah 5, 23. But this people hath a revolting and a rebellious heart. They're revolted and gone. Your heart is rebellious. How does that show up? Well, sin is rebellion against God. It's selfishness. I'm going my own way. I don't want anybody telling me how to live. I don't want God dictating his terms to me. I'll live my own life. And then isn't it strange to see other people? They have troubles, they have burdens, they have difficulties, and you'll try everything but God. 
You'll go to the psychiatrist before you'll go to God. You'll go to anybody else for advice instead of going to God. Our hearts are rebellious against God. And many times only in desperation, when God brings us to the point of desperation, can we be one to Him. We are rebellious. We rebel against Him. And then the Bible says that our hearts can be hardened. Is your heart right? And then the Bible says he searches the heart. I, the Lord, search the heart, Jeremiah 17, 10. God searches the heart. God weighs the heart. He weighs it by the Ten Commandments. He weighs it by the Sermon on the Mount. He weighs it by the great law. He weighs it by Christ. And the Bible says that all have come short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says there's not a person that doeth good, no, not one. There is not a person here that weighs enough. And I will give you a heart of flesh. That's the reason Christ said, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. I ask you tonight, wouldn't you like to have a new heart? Wouldn't you like to have new power and new strength and a new dynamic to your life? Wouldn't you like to have a new moral nature that would give you strength and power to face temptation and the tempter? Wouldn't you like to have Christ tonight who can forgive the past? He transforms you and you become a new creation in Christ. Is your heart right? Is your heart right? Is your heart right? Would you like to have a new heart? I tell you tonight you can't. You say, well, Billy, how long does it take? That quick. The Holy Spirit is the one that performs the operation of regeneration. And in a flash, if you are willing to renounce and confess and acknowledge that you've sinned against God, you're willing to accept God's diagnosis of your heart. You're willing to accept the fact that your heart is sinful, that it's deceitful, that you've sinned against Him, you're willing to acknowledge it and you're willing to renounce and turn from your sin and you're willing to come to Christ who died on the cross and rose again, then he will give you a new heart and you will go back to your shop, back to your office, back to your home, back to your responsibilities to live a new life. The gospel is vertical Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, a right heart, but it's also horizontal. Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. And when your heart is right, you have the ability, the capacity to love your neighbor properly. But not till then. Give your life to Christ tonight. Let him give you a new heart. Make you a new person. And give you the joy and the peace that you've always longed for. Now, it'll cost you something. It doesn't come cheap. It cost Christ his blood. It cost God his son. And it'll cost you your sins. He demands that you deny self. Take up the cross. Take his unpopularity. Take your place with him in suffering if need be. But in return, he'll give you a new heart. He'll accept you into his kingdom. He'll forgive the past. He'll make you a new creation. There are many of you here tonight that belong to a church. You live a decent moral life, but you've never really come to this experience of an encounter with God. You've never really surrendered your heart and life to Him. You've never really received Christ to receive a new heart from Him. I ask you to come tonight.
Here's the way we're going to do it. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat all over this great auditorium and come and stand quietly and reverently here in front as an indication that you're receiving Christ, that you want a new heart and a new life from this moment on, that you're going to change the direction of your life. The Holy Spirit has been speaking. He's been preparing your heart. Now you come and receive Christ. If you're with friends or relatives, they'll wait on you. If you've come in a delegation tonight, they'll wait. We're not going to keep you long, but I'm going to ask you to come and stand right here quietly and reverently and say tonight by coming, I give my life to Christ. I want a new life. I want a new heart. I want forgiveness of the past. I want Christ in my life and in my heart. All right. If I could have the band come to the front. And if you want to respond to Billy Graham's altar call, why not today? If you want to respond to that altar call in any form, whether it's salvation or whether you want a new heart or you want the forgiveness of your sins, now is your opportunity. Would you stand if you want to respond to Billy's altar call? Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. God, we thank you for the regeneration of the soul. We thank you that at any moment the Holy Spirit can knock on our hearts and do surgery on us. We know that the only way that we can love each other, love our families, love our community, love this broken world is to know your love first. We celebrate and honor a godly man that changed the world because he chose faith over doubt. And we even honor the doubter, the Thomases and us all. Only you know if Charles Templeton is in heaven. But based off of his last testimony, it seems like he's there. Thank you so much for your grace that surpasses all understanding, God. Draw us into right relationship with you.